of what we're 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 going to talk about in terms of this walk, and uh, I found it a little bit convicting, and I've also found it a little bit hard. And I was talking to my Sunday school class today, and I find it a little bit old-fashioned because all of a sudden we're going to watch Paul make another shift here, and what he's going to say is he started by explaining all of this glorious grace. And then he talked about all these ways we were supposed to walk in wisdom from love to worthy to all of these different ways that we're supposed to walk. And now he's going to do this. He's going to say, okay, I want to give three examples of areas you're supposed to walk in grace and three examples of of places that you're supposed to walk in wisdom. And you're supposed to walk worthy. And he says... And the first one I want to give is marriage. I I want you to walk right in your marriage. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing because he's bridging this verse that he he used at the end of chapter 2 where he said, and, uh, oops, this is not the right part. Let me just see if I can find it here. Here we go. He said in 521, he said, submit to one another out of reverence for God. Remember what he said that? And and I said that there, there was this deference that we were supposed to have in our Christian walk where we are willing to take a look at our relationship with the Lord and we're going to let that relationship affect every relationship that we have and we're going to treat people differently as we walk in wisdom, and one of the ways we're going to do that is we're going to walk in the spirit-filled deference. Now, when we were talking about deference last week, uh, when we were talking about being spirit-filled last week, um, I think I said something wrong. And one of uh, when I was talking to someone this week, and they said, I, "I'm not sure you meant to say this." I said that our souls leak. Remember me saying that? And so we need constant filling. That that isn't the truth. Our souls don't leak. Our souls are picky. That's the truth. And I think that there are times that we don't have more of God because we are holding him back. It's like we're looking at the beaker of our soul and saying, "Ah, I've got about 30 milliliters of the Holy Spirit, and that's enough. And so instead of experiencing his complete filling, what we do is we suppress the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there are certain areas that it's really easy to do that in. And one of those areas that I think it's really easy to do that in is in the area of relationships. Wouldn't you say that's an easy area to do that in? I think there are times where we go to God and we say, God, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get along with these people. And God's saying, well, it's not really your problem. How are we going to get along with them? I wouldn't ask you a command. I wouldn't make a command to you that you are supposed to love people if I didn't think you could do it with me. And often we look at him and we go, but I I can't do it, seem to do it very well on my own. And we go, well, he's going, well, that's okay. Because I didn't create you to live this life on your own. I created you to live this life filled with my spirit and connected to me. And so sometimes the people in your life are just a little bit hard to get along with, and I do that on purpose. Because I want to make sure that you're filled with me instead of just yourself, and you need to have these relationships because you can't do it all on your own. One of the relationships that he talks about that he goes to first, and I think it's interesting, is he goes immediately to, the, to marriage. And he says, okay, now, 
Here's what difference looks like in marriage. Here's what a spirit-filled marriage looks like. And as I was thinking about that, and I, and I, I watched some YouTube videos on it, and I, I tried to, th- to see what other people were saying about it, one of the things that we certainly find in today's society is that anything that the Word of God might say about things like this is just old-fashioned. You know, we're, we're more sophisticated. We've kind of moved beyond that. But the reality is, is that we need to take one more time a peek underneath the hood and say, God, where is this idea of marriage from? Where, where did you come up with this idea of marriage? And you can go back to Genesis 3. Let's go there. Um, what does a grace-filled marriage look like? Well, we can go to Genesis chapter 3 and we can find out, this is really important for you to know, that God designed marriage himself. Okay, This isn't some kind of construct of culture This isn't some kind of idea put together by a group of people to impose on other people so they somehow can make everybody live a certain way. We need to understand and we need to embrace the idea that marriage exists, that the male-female relationship that God created exists because he's the one, it was his idea. You know? And so in marriage, it's hard. You can't simply go and say, well, you know, if we just lived in a different culture, it would be easier. No, we have to be honest and say, you know what, God, marriage is kind of hard. Why'd you create it this way? Well, what do I need to learn about it? So let's turn back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we find this idea of how he created marriage. And it says then, it said this, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, God realized that when he created everything else, he kind of created things in pairs. But when he created man in his own image, he only created man. And you know what's interesting? Is God, first he saw the problem, but then he wanted Adam to see the problem. And so as we read on in this passage, it says, So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. So God saw a problem, but then he thought that man needed to see a solution. I think it's kind of cool that God does this. And so what he did is he says, I'm going to bring all the animals. And whenever he brought animals, Adam would notice that There was a pair. And he would have to name every single one of them. The power to do this is amazing because I don't know about you, but when we had to name our four children, it was stressful. We only had to name four. But it says that he went through this process and that he named all of the living creatures. What an incredible test. And what an incredible time to be blown away by God's creation. You know, when I was a kid, we used to have these things called encyclopedias. Remember those? And I would go through and I would read about all these different animals. At one point in my life, I was really captured by birds. And inside the encyclopedia, it had this ability for you to see what a bird skeleton looked like. So in my mind, I was like, I'd like to have a bird skeleton of my own. So one day, I was walking through the cemetery and I found a dead bird and I took it home. And then I forgot about it, and my mom noticed it later because my room really smelled bad. 
but there is this fascination and and that's why we even enjoy doing things like going to the the zoo because it is just fun and amazing to think of all the different ways God can create animals. My son was laughing the other day. He took me out for Father's Day and he was saying, you know, I work in the butcher shop and everybody wants Angus beef, but that just means it has a certain colored skin. But then I started thinking of growing up around cattle and how many different kinds of just cattle there were. And how amazing God's creation really is. And so that's was, that was Adam's experience. He had this experience of, of, of seeing God's creation and being amazed by it. But then it says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was found a helper, not found a helper fit for him. And so Adam started realizing something. There were two elephants, and then there were two rhinoceroses, and then there were two ladybugs, and everything came in twos, and Adam probably came to the realization, there is no one like me. You know? Yeah, the dog can be my friend, but I'm not going to have a really great conversation with the dog. God saw this and he made sure that Adam saw this so that when God worked his miracle, Adam would be aware of his miracle. I think it's really interesting that he had to name the animals first. That he got to see all of creation first. And then this is what happened. So God caused a deep sleep. This is the first surgery in the Word of God. Okay? Fell on man and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and he closed its place with flesh. Go on and it says, and the, and the rib that, that the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, there's all kinds of things you can pontificate about why it was a rib instead of a, a neck bone or all those kinds of things. I'm not here to do that, but it's just this amazing thing that God created woman. And he created woman to complete man. You watch me sometimes when Nancy's not around. I am not complete. There is something really special about that relationship. Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We should call her woman because she was taken out of man. He, he's still doing his job, right? Okay. Okay, I've named everything else, but this one's different. This is, this is like me. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I'm going to call her a woman. It goes on and says this in Scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall, they shall become one flesh. It's interesting that this is said before there were even homes for men to leave. Isn't that interesting? God realized that one of the great challenges for men was going to be to leave home. And if you've been married to one, you you find out that's true at times. And and that's why guys say dumb things. One of the dumb things that some guys will say, not that you should ever say this, is my mom does that better. If you say that, you have not left home. You know? 
Well, the way we did it when we grew up was this way. I can remember telling Nancy one time that the way her dad did something was the dumbest thing I ever heard of. I had to learn that it wasn't wrong, it was different. But the reality is, is that God explained this relationship and then he used this idea of one flesh. And in, 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 if you go back to the King James, it says, and they knew each other. And I think that that's such a beautiful word because you go to the New Testament and it tells you that if we have a real meaningful relationship with God, how does he describe it? That we know God. And there's just something incredibly special about this relationship that God created so that man would have someone that was like him, that could be his helpmate, that could be in his life. That's what God created. And we've got to remember, and part of the reason we fight for marriage is because it was God's idea. And it was His design. And it wasn't a construct. It wasn't a social thing. Uh, you, you can watch all these shows, according to the anthropology, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. The Word of God says God created marriage. It was His idea. What's interesting is when we get to the end of this passage, we'll see that one of the reasons that He created it was it's a special mystery. I wish we could just end there in the idealism of what God created, but we have to read the next chapter, don't we? And in the next chapter, all of a sudden we find that man only had one rule, right? One rule. One thing that he wasn't supposed to do. And for some reason, the one thing that he wasn't supposed to do was more attractive than all the things he could do. And so man and woman rebelled against God. And because of that, this beautiful thing that God created, this beautiful relationship that God created, it was affected by the fall of man and by sin. You see that in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, and I, and I, I specifically picked the New Living Version on this uh, other than the ESV just because I think it says it best. It says this, and you will desire to control your husband. He was talking to Eve, but he will rule over you. And so it says that all of a sudden, this beautiful relationship that God had created where there could be oneness. In fact, the next verse said they were naked and they were unashamed. Where there could be this wonderful relationship of connection. All of a sudden, the cunning of man enters into this relationship. And so it says that one of the things that a woman is going to control, you're going to struggle with, is going to be wanting to control the person they marry. And one of the things that the men are going to do is if they decide to lead, they're going to lead with an autocratic, legalistic, harsh spirit. And so all of a sudden, this beautiful thing that God created was tainted by sin. And you watch in the whole Old Testament and all the stories, there's always marriage problems. There's always struggles. And it isn't easy. Sin gets in the way of something that's absolutely supposed to be beautiful. But then Jesus Christ dies on the cross. And when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, there's this ability to have something different. There's this ability to take what was broken 
and resolve it. Think about that. That's, that's what you see happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, marriage is broken. In the New Testament, marriage is restored. In the Old Testament, they're told to be fruitful and multiply and, and spread across the whole world, but they decide not to. And they try to form this thing called the Tower of Babel, right? And so what does God do? He, he gives them language to confuse them, to keep them moving on. But what happens on the day of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes, and what was once Babel, Peter speaks in every single language clearly to the people. There's a restoration, a move back towards something that is wonderful. And that's what Paul is talking about today in this passage. Paul is talking about the fact that sin taints marriage, so there is a desire for control. There's a spirit of fear. There's a, there's a harshness. There's a lack of love. Those things all can exist inside marriage, but God has a better way, and that's what he explains in Ephesians as we continue on. So as we continue on, we see that he starts in verse 22, and he says, wives, submit to your husband's as to the Lord. The wives' walk is interesting because she's supposed to submit to her husband as to the Lord. This is really important. See, she always has the Lord in mind, and she always is trusting the Lord in what's going on. It's not just simply about submitting to some man that she marries. It's like, you know, God, because I trust you so much and I know that you brought us together in this marriage and that we were supposed to leave and we were supposed to cleave to each other and we were supposed to become one, even though he is not that smart. Even though there are times that I'm not sure he's thinking it all through, because I trust you, I'm going to learn to trust him and I'm going to be willing to take on this role that is really hard for me because sin wants me to be in control. Sin, sin knows that I think about everything a lot more than he does because a lot of times when I bring things up, he's never ever thought about them ever and I've been thinking about them for weeks and weeks and why can't he see what I see? You know, and on and on and on it goes, right? And yet, God is saying in his word that because you have a relationship with me and you're learning to walk in wisdom, you're going to learn to trust the leadership of this guy. And the reason you trust the leadership of that guy, well, he goes on and he explains it. He uses the church as the model. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and he himself is its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You know, I, I was hoping there would be an exception clause for you, because I know that it, there are certain things it's, it's hard to be under somebody's leadership for, but the Word of God makes it clear everything. This is not an easy thing. And so the world tries to change it and says, well, you know, those role ideas, they're, they're antiquated. And those, those ideas, they, they reflect thinking of a different time. But the Word of God is timeless. And so we have to figure out how this looks today. Now, we used to think it looked in other ways. Like, my father, with pride, will tell you that he never, ever, ever 
changed one single diaper the whole time the kids were growing up. I cannot say that. Does that mean that I'm a different kind of leader than him? No, just that diapers have very little to do with leadership. They have to do with the need to be changed. And if Nancy's not there, probably I should take care of this instead of going, well, it says it will hold 14 to 16 pounds. Well, we're only at 13. We're good. (laughs) There is a sense that God is saying that, see, marriage is a picture of the church. And God is the head of the church, and we're learning to submit to his leadership. And even though you don't completely understand it, I created you in roles. When I created you, I created you to be one. And so each of you is a different piece of the puzzle, and you each have a different role. And one of the things that I'm asking of you, my daughters in Christ, is to trust me by being under his leadership. And you're saying, well, well, does that mean I can't have an opinion? No, I, he didn't say you can't have an opinion. In fact, it says the two are supposed to be one. And one of the things that I think that you as men need to understand is probably the better part of your brain happens to be in her head. Okay? And so there is a sense that, that we need to learn how to communicate and come together because this idea of what leadership looks like... I. I'm a little uncomfortable with it because if it was just simply being in charge, boy, that, that's an easy leadership thing. But all of a sudden, as we take a look at Scripture, he's saying, well, no, wait a minute here. I, I want you as men to love your wives and be like Christ, an example of leadership. Oh, do you want to take a look at that? I think it's only fair. Don't you think so, ladies? A husband's walk is simple. Husbands, love your wives. Hmm. But you're going to notice that God spends more time using Paul to explain to the guys what this means because we need more information. Okay? And so this is what he says. He says that Christ is our model. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle in such a way that she might be holy and without blemish. That's a lot of information, isn't it? When he says that you're supposed to love your wives, it's, it's a different picture than what we had at first because it takes, first of all, a deep deal of knowing who this woman is. And, and it means that, that not only when you stand before the Lord are you going to be responsible for the person you're going to be coming, but according to what this says, you are also responsible for the person that she is becoming. You're supposed to help get her ready. When I was a young man and I was getting ready to be married, uh, a man named Brian Bill met with me and he explained it this way. He says, Jim, he says, I think that one of the pictures that really explains this well is that God has called you to be the gardener of an absolutely beautiful flower.
And if you walk alongside of that flower and you get to know everything about that flower and you understand how to take care of that flower, that flower will bloom and be an absolutely gorgeous thing. But if you neglect your flower, it's not going to go so well. So God is calling us as men to do something that is unusual for men. He's calling us to be incredibly relational. He's calling us to, to take care, to help guide, and to be in the lives. And, and i, I got to be honest with you, when I hear complaints from, from women in general, and sometimes my wife in specific, it's because she wants to be especially spiritually led. And I feel like I'm just running behind trying to catch up. And so I give myself permission to not take that role. What does love look like? It says that first of all, that love sacrifices. You see that in verse 27. It sacrifices. It's willing to sacrifice for the sake of the other becoming all it's supposed to be in Christ. It sacrifices. Second of all, it says that, that love sanctifies. It, it, it's honest and it helps the person become all that they're supposed to be. Sometimes we're having honest relationships with the person that we're married to and the other person goes, what are some things that I can work on? And all we can see is all the things that we need to work on so we say, you're doing just fine. And that's not what they want to hear. They want to become all that they're supposed to be. And so they need our honesty. Do you know why they need our honesty? Because in reality, everybody in the world usually is not very honest with us. Is not incredibly helpful at all. And so we need somebody inside that relationship to make us better, that can be honest with us and that we can be honest with so that we can be sanctified. James says it so we can be perfect and complete and not lacking in anything. When I worked with Max Edwards, my pastor in Indiana, we had a really honest relationship. And so he was willing to be honest with me and say, Jim, these are some things that you need to work on. And occasionally he would do some things or say some things and I would be honest with him and say, these are some things you need to work on. But occasionally I would come into his office on a Monday and he'd look at me and he'd go, you don't need to say anything. Why not? Dixie already explained it all yesterday. See, they had an honest relationship. And there were times that that he would speak honestly to her and she would be, and they were sanctifying each other and they were helping each other grow, holding each other accountable and grow in their relationship. But we as men are supposed to be spiritual leaders, sacrificial leaders, spiritual leaders, so that we can so that he can present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle in such a way that she might be holy and without blemish. We should find as much joy in watching our mates become all that they're supposed to be as we do in gaining the trophies of accomplishment in our own experience. That's hard for a man. A man likes to collect his own trophies. And sometimes a man likes to look at his wife as a trophy, right? Instead of saying, how can I help you become all that God has wired you to be so you can completely blossom 
into the person God is making you. He goes on and he says that not only is the church a model of how a man should act, but he says that self-preservation is a model of how a man should treat his wife. And it says this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. Who who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as the church, as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. He's saying there's something else that you need to be. You are in charge. Gentlemen, you are in charge of the nurture of your wives. Now, when I was a younger man, this was hard for me. I can remember I went through a real period of time where I felt like Nancy was just so much more brilliant than I that whenever she would come to a discussion, she would have an idea and I'd just go with it. Because, first of all, I'd never ever thought of that before, ever in my life before. And second of all, she had seemed to think it through pretty well. But to take care of Nancy like I want to take care of myself, wow, that's different. God is calling you as men to follow the model of Christ and the church, but he's also saying you need to love your wife as you love yourself. You know, that's actually in Scripture, isn't it? Scripture tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then it's supposed to love your neighbor as you love, what? Yourself. And so you need to be as involved in spouse care as you are in self-care. You need to be as involved in making them have that experience as you want it for yourself. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing when you have little kids and your wife looks at you and goes, please take the monsters away. And in your mind think, I have already worked 40 hours this week, blah, 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 blah. You know? It's no easier at any stage of life to make sure that you're not just taking care of yourself, but you're taking care of your mate. And you know what? This is really important. I'm going to tell you something, men. The reason... One of the reasons there's so much divorce in marriage is that we've made our wives too self-reliant instead of taking care of them. That's why when I was in high school, I watched a lot of young men and young women watch their parents divorce. Why? Because they were in the second decade of marriage. The, the husbands had not been doing enough care of their wives and preservation of their marriage. And so the women would just simply say this, I'm doing really well without you. I don't know why I need you. That isn't oneness. God has called you to the great mystery. In I think it's in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, it says, it is the glory of a king to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of men to seek it out. Your wife, your wife, your mate, your spouse is a hidden treasure and God is calling you to mine the depths of completely understanding everything they are. That means that you need to gain as much joy in them explaining the story the way they like to as you tell the story yourself. That means maybe doing a little less of what you really enjoy and doing a lot more of what they 
value, and enjoy. You see, graceful marriage describes the church. Take a look at what he says here. I think it's really interesting. He says, therefore a man, going right back to to chapter 2 of Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he says this in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying, look, the reason I can give you these illustrations of the church and Christ as this picture of what marriage should be is because marriage is a picture of what the church should be. Do you get it? This is the great mystery. This is why we protect marriage. We protect marriage because it describes better than anything else the great mystery. Because what does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that we are the bride of Christ, right? And that He gave Himself for us. And that He sacrificed Himself for us. And what is He looking forward to? He's looking forward to spending eternity with His bride. And so when we don't value marriage, when we let society twist it and turn it into things that God never said it was supposed to be, we are devaluing the church, and we are devaluing eternity. That's why when Paul, as he began to describe this, as he's saying, wait a minute here, God has redeemed marriage, God is wanting to be grace-filled, and so women, I'm going to ask you to take on the role that you were from the beginning of time, I'm going to ask you to be the helpmate, to walk alongside this man, to help him succeed. And, and honey, I'm going to ask you to, to work with the, with the man. Man, I want you to take such good care of your wife that she is absolutely secure inside the oneness of that relationship. And that she becomes all that she's supposed to be. Proverbs 31, right? Proverbs 31 is this picture of this woman who is flourishing, right? Why? Because the man figured out all these things, amazing things that she was capable of, and he can bless her and being all that she's supposed to be. But that's God's picture. That's what he wants marriage to be. And when we degrade marriage, we degrade the church, and when we degrade the church, eternity doesn't seem to matter any much because the wedding feast of the Lamb doesn't seem like that big a deal. That's why I think marriages are such a big deal. That's why I think people pour so much money into them at times. Is there's an extravagance that's supposed to be here because it's supposed to be a small, tiny picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what is my challenge to my brothers and sisters who are either married or thinking about married or having to work through some of the damage of marriage, I, I think you've got to trust God. I, I know he's not that smart. You know why I know that? Because I'm one of him. But as you trust God, and as you're willing to go, okay, honey, we're going to do that. You know? There's some amazing things that occasionally can take place. 
and gentlemen, it's calling you to lead in love. It's calling you to lead in love. And we now live in a society where men are so passive. They're not leading. And they're not loving. And they're not sacrificing. They're just doing their thing. And that is not the picture that God has of marriage that he's called you and I to live in. I'll end with this story. The day after we buried Nancy's father, her mother gathered us all together. And she gave every single one of us men something that meant something to dad. I received one of his signet rings, and in my office is his Bible. Every one of us got something. And then she started to weep. And she says, I've got something I need to say to all of you. Your dad was a great leader. He led me well. And I'm at a loss to not have him here. But I need to say something to my granddaughters and my daughter-in-laws and my daughters. The biggest mistake I've made in my life was not trusting that God gave me that man. And most of the misery in my life comes from my unwillingness to submit to his leadership. Please do not make that mistake. So God is calling you, ladies, to trust him as you trust God. And then God is calling you men to be leaders like Jesus Christ is the leader of the church, to sacrifice and to bring her up holy before the God. Let's pray together. God, this is hard because I'm still learning. I'm still learning to be a leader like you called me to do for my family and my wife. And so, like most men, I have to say, God, forgive me for the moments that I am passive and insensitive and unaware. Help me to lead like you. And God, I pray for the ladies in this room, especially for those that have spouses that aren't spiritual leaders. They don't even know you. God, I'm glad that you step in as a surrogate in those situations. For those that are have outlived their spouses or have walked alone for a long time, God, I pray that your grace would fill each of our lives. And in the things that you've called us to do, that we would trust you with all of our hearts. God, you are not old-fashioned. You are the thoughtful leader, and we need to follow you. Help our marriages to reflect the Savior who died for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Charlie, why don't you lead us in the last song as we close today?
Let's stand together.